It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. In an era of online retail where everything is just a few clicks away, buying a car should be no different. That's why at Carvana, you can buy a car 100% online. We made it easy to browse, view, and buy from over 10,000 cars. You can even trade in your old car, all while binge-watching your favorite TV show. Afterwards, we'll deliver your car to you, or you can pick it up from one of our car vending machines. Either way, your car comes with a seven-day return policy. So grab a seat, relax in your comfy pants, and enjoy the new way to buy a car at Carvana. Napa know-how. Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. I fumbled the phone in the air and then caught it. And then I continued and then I broke it. He was like, oh! Welcome back for a brand new episode of Collider Ladies Night. Today I have Carrie Kuhn with me. Hello, hello. How is everything oh, going? It's going well, actually. I mean, look, it's a global pandemic. But uh, as far as the circumstances go, my family is is very comfortable and healthy. So. I- I'm very, very happy to hear that. And you do have a movie to celebrate. We are here for The Nest, but on Collider to Ladies Night, we like to talk about the very, very beginning. And one of my favorite places to start has become, what were you watching when you were really, really young? And do you find that those movies and shows influence the roles you gravitate towards today? Oh, interesting. When I was really, really young... We did grow up on a lot of TV, just, you know, your Saturday morning fair. But what I really remember is that I used to go watch movies at my grandparents. And so my grandpa would show us uh, Sabrina and Bridge on the River Kwai and uh, African Queen, all the old Audrey Hepburn and Spencer Tracy and just 
all those old black and white films, a lot of war movies, a lot of romantic films. And that's what we did. We'd go spend the night at their house and we'd, we'd watch those old movies. And my grandfather had done some community theater after World War II. So he's sort of the other actor in the family. I think he thinks of himself as the other actor in the family. And um, I suppose there's a classiness about those pieces that I appreciate. There's an elegance about the women. There's even a strength, especially in the pre-code films, to the female roles. They're not all some people might, might think that older films would be trafficking in stereotypes, and they do. But there are actually some really amazing female parts in those early films. And like all women, I'm looking to play the kind of women I know who have depth and strength and complication. And I, I, don't, I don't encounter those roles a lot. Your resume, though, I mean, as you were describing it, I'm busy, like, ticking off every single film and show that I've seen you do. And, you know, you're, you're playing pretty full characters with a good deal of depth to them. Or That's, at least right. That's what I say know. yes to, you know. I, I, um, or what says yes to me, I guess I should say. We don't always get to choose. But um, I wouldn't spend time on something I didn't, I wasn't interested in or I wasn't curious about. And I think I've always tended to play a little bit older than my age. I've always had a little bit more gravitas, even as an ingenue in the theater. I, I went, somebody uh, in my hometown in Chicago once said that I couldn't audition for Juliet because I was so dark. And I said, she kills herself. <laughs> you can't get any darker than that. So I've always, um, and what's interesting is that my family thinks of me as very lighthearted and easygoing. And so I think sometimes when I walk onto a set, directors are expecting this really lugubrious you know, brooding person. And that's just not who I am at all. So that my family's really surprised by the parts I play. Going back to what you just said about only taking roles that really speak to you. When you were first starting out, did you ever run into the challenge of having that mentality, but also feeling the need to say yes to things in order to accumulate experience and credits? Absolutely. And if we were speaking to a beginning acting class right now, if anybody's watching from a beginning acting class, I would have told you to say yes to everything. And I did for years. I said yes to everything because you're always going to learn something from the process, whether it's a kind of process you never want to do again <laughs> or uh, what your strengths and weaknesses are, what your habits are. So as a young actor, I did say yes to everything. And it's only recently that I have the power to say no, which is just about the only power an actor has. So I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Speaking of uh, acting students out there, I always like digging into the idea of whether or not to go to school for, for film school or to take a, uh, a proper program in acting. So what made you get the MFA versus just kind of jump right into the industry? Well, I was unusual in some ways in that I think so many actors know at a very young age that's what they want to do. And a lot of them even have experience when they're young. And I had none. I, I had gone to college to play soccer in my home state at a division three school. I changed majors eight times. I ended up as a English lit and Spanish lit double major with a minor in psychology, just because that's, those are the credits I had. And I didn't, I had a, there was a very small theater program. So I took a few classes, but it was a small theater. We only did a handful of plays every year. And I probably did five or six plays in college. So when I was graduating, I was actually looking to do, um, I was going to study linguistics and I was shopping, getting ready to shop out my thesis for graduate programs. I would still be in school right now if I'd done that. And um, I had a professor who said, you should audition for graduate school for acting. And it was not something that had occurred to me. So in some ways I didn't, 
I came from a small town in Ohio. I didn't know anything about the business. And so I didn't really feel, I didn't have ambitions about where I should go. And so I kind of needed to learn, learn what I was doing. So I, I went right from undergrad to graduate school and, and then graduated when I was 26. Now, conversely, my husband, who didn't go to college, started acting when he was 18 and writing plays and never had any training. So it's really up to each individual. And you get out of it what you put into it. But the learning you do is on stage. You don't really learn in classes as much as you learn doing the work. So whatever gets you to do the work, that's what you should do. Now, because I'm curious, one, when you were a kid, what were you saying you wanted to be when you grew up? And also, what was the very first major you chose in your undergrad program? Oh, good questions. I think I, I, think I showed some early inclinations toward politics. I was doing some speaking out at some local meetings around eight. Um, some of the other things were probably a little less politically correct, <laughs> but I, um, my first major was, I think I was a Japanese and business major for about 10 days. And then I went into philosophy and then education. And then maybe that's when I started moving my way toward English and adding in the Spanish and, you know, so that's what life is all about though, kind of feeling right. it out and figuring out what, what your calling is. That's right. And apparently I, I found an essay. I was going through my basement. Apparently I wanted to be a teacher. For a little while. My grandmother was a great science teacher. Uh, so I always admire the profession. We certainly need good teachers, but um, I, it was not for me. <laughs> so with only your grandfather having had any acting experience, what did your family say when you expressed interest in getting into the entertainment industry, which is, you know, it's, it's like one in a million. Right. I'm very fortunate. I come from a, my, my parents both worked and I, there's five kids in my family. And I think my parents made a lot of decisions that were responsible. And so for me, they wanted me to have a life that I enjoyed. And as soon as the possibility came that I could, that I got into a graduate program for acting, the only one I got into, they said, what the hell, go to acting school, you know, see what happens. It's only three years. And it was, had it cost money, I think that conversation would have been different, but I actually got a full ride to Wisconsin to teach. So um, because I didn't have to pay for it, they were very supportive. (laughs) That is definitely a huge help. Yes. Another thing that I know a lot of people who want to break into the industry run into is no matter where you're from, you're often encouraged to move to New York or LA. You didn't do that. I believe you, you switched between going back and forth between Milwaukee and Chicago for a period of time. So were you ever encouraged to go to one coast or the other? And was that a difficult decision to make? I went to school at UW-Madison in Wisconsin, and my first job was an apprenticeship at the American Players Theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin, which is an outdoor Shakespeare theater that's about 1,100 seats. And I can honestly say that if they had invited me to join their company, I would have, that I had a very satisfying time there. I loved being outside. I loved what they, the, they were really immersed in that language in a way that as a literature major felt like a natural fit for me. But it so happened that we invited some casting directors and I ended up getting an agent in Chicago. So it took me four years to make the transition from sort of between Wisconsin. I mean, I was working in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee and Madison, probably 10 months out of the year. And then I just started tiptoeing into commercial auditions in Chicago. And it had not occurred to me because I was working. I was, I was making a very modest living as an actor because those, you know, those summer stock theaters, they, it was paying a living wage. I had worked 10 months out of the year. So I didn't have ambitions beyond that. And it wasn't until a play I was doing in Chicago went to Broadway that that opened the possibility of New York for me. And LA felt like a foreign country. Uh, 
I'd, I'd more likely go to a foreign country than LA. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same mentality at a point. So <laughs> even with all the experience you had prior, what, was there anything about Broadway that kind of, I don't know, really threw you for a loop or challenged you? Well, it is, I can't deny that it's incredibly moving and gratifying as a young actor to walk into those spaces and feel the weight of that history behind you and, and how few people get the privilege of operating at that level. Uh, you have to maintain your awareness of that. And yet you go in and you look at the stage and it's really moving and breathtaking. And then you turn around and you go on the stage to put your show up and you're just in a theater and you realize, oh, I know how to do this. This isn't different. It's just I'm putting on the play again. And so it sort of existed as in both ways. And, and also like really shitty dressing rooms. There's really nothing special about Broadway. <laughs> so what is the must to have in your shitty dressing room to make it feel like a comfortable home for you? Earplugs, because no one, <laughs> my, my dressing room is right next to the stage manager's office and those people never get to rest. So, and that play is almost three hours and you're doing it twice a day. You, you need to take a nap. So earplugs and a blanket, because you never know what the temperature is going to be in those spaces. That's, that's very fair there. So going to do that show on Broadway and then you get the Tony nomination. Is it safe to assume that that was kind of the game changer where roles start coming your way? And I don't know, is that the point where you run into the, the should I, shouldn't I when it comes to making the move from stage to screen? That's interesting. You know, I think the, the possibility of TV and film opening up for me more happened before the Tony nomination insofar as I was coming up in a time when casting directors were still kingmakers. And so there are some great, casting directors acting in good faith who see all the theater. So the reason that I was able to break into film was because of people like Ellen Lewis who were championing me because they had seen me in the play. And certainly the Tony Award didn't hurt, but I was already taking those general meetings just by virtue of having a play on Broadway in New York City. And then um, basically the, the opportunities then picked me. I, I finished the Tony Awards, leftovers. I think I booked that same month, which was the July following the Tony Awards. And it was a few weeks later that I booked Gone Girl. So yeah, it might've been a couple months later. No, no, because we started in August. So a few weeks later. So then it just, then it was off to the races. Going back to casting directors, because I feel like we, we don't talk about them often enough. I mean, you call them kingmakers before. How would you compare your relationships with casting directors now compared to back then? What I think, I still have, I still have, um, those casting directors who've been operating in New York for decades, I have a great relationship with those people. Um, and Rachel Tenor and, you know, some people who cast Fargo and things like that, uh, who's a Chicago person. But what's changing is the business. And what's happening is that now that we're moving towards self-tape and technology, what it does is it widens the playing field, which is wonderful. You can submit a tape from anywhere in the country. But I think casting directors have become tape farms as opposed to people who have specialized skills about choosing actors. Now there are filmmakers like Scorsese who works with Ellen Lewis and always will, um, who is always going to rely on her expertise. But I just think that the industry doesn't trust their expertise in the same way. And they just say more tapes, more tapes. And they, and they look for the exact thing that they, that they want, as opposed to letting casting directors say, here are the 10 people you want to look at for this part. Huh. So I just feel like that's a little bit of the death of expertise that we're experiencing, frankly, not just in the entertainment industry. Yeah, I hadn't quite thought about it that way. Are there any other areas in the industry that you are that you think are either, I don't know, changing for the worst or better, given, especially right now when we're all in lockdown and we're getting so obsessed with all this technology, 
Do you see anything else changing in that way? I, I mean, it shocks me how much we can do through these virtual mediums, but they require some equipment that I'm just getting acquainted with. Selfie lights and tripods of every stripe. You know, it's just, there's a lot of technology, but I just did a photo shoot for the nest for press and the photographer had an app where he was controlling the camera on my iPhone. So I was the photographer's assistant and he's in New York and he's taking pictures of me. So I find the technology is astonishing and I hope that it finds its way into the theatrical spaces. We're already seeing how projections and, you know, different kinds of audio and how we're illustrating text on stage and things are, are changing a lot. Um, but theater sort of has to stay, has to catch up with TV and film in that way. And now there's all kinds of innovative ways to use Zoom to do scene work. And so I don't know, but I think it's nice that people can live anywhere. I think that's healthier because let's face it, cities are too expensive for artists. Yeah. And uh, I don't know an artist, you know, pursuing your craft. I also feel like when you take yourself away from family, it makes it a little more difficult to pursue that craft. Yeah, I think we, we do have to follow the work and that can take us away for a really long time. And then it gets harder and harder to fill up the well and that desperation and, you know, how few jobs there are and how many actors there are. And now with the pandemic, you're going to see a real war of attrition. A lot of actors and artists are going to leave the industry because there is no industry. And we're going to lose a lot of people. And then the people who hang in there we're going to, are going to have a little more opportunity. So it's kind of cuts both ways. Yeah. Um, not to harp on the pandemic more, but having a theater background, do you see any kind of like light at the end of the tunnel? That's, that's basically the one part of the entertainment industry where, where I can't find any, any sort of, not necessarily solution, but even just like a partial fix to the situation. No. <laughs> the only consolation is that even if 75% of the theaters in this country disappear, and they probably will, that more companies will emerge and they will be innovative and they'll be younger and they'll be really interesting. And so, you know, life will out. Art will always fill a void. So I don't worry about it going away forever, but it's decimated our business. It's decimated. And we can't come back on Broadway until there's a, a vaccine, you know, at the very least. So... But the, the only consolation is what gets to come out of the ashes of it. No, that's, that's true. And just how the situation is forcing people to be creative in new ways mm -hmm. compared to before. And the reckoning we're having with um, We See You White Theater, you know, and the Black Lives Matter movement is a really important change system-wide that has to occur. And now that theaters are dormant, they really have the time to kind of figure out how they, how they come out of this. What do they look like on the other side? I know Steppenwolf is reckoning with that right now, and it's overdue. I, I kind of like looking at it that way. That's probably one of the best silver linings I've heard yet. So fingers crossed we do, do as well as we can, you know. So going into the filmography now, I, I guess let's start with, with Gone Girl here. So your feature debut, and I imagine it must have been something else doing something like that with David Fincher. Yeah. One idea that I always think of is when Jake Gyllenhaal explained that he likes to paint with people and sometimes it could be a challenge to feel like a color. So did you find that at all? And what was your experience on that set like? I had the sort of blessing and curse of ignorance. There was so much about making films that I didn't know anything about. Basic vocabulary, I didn't know. I mean, it was absolutely my first film. I had shot two television, like three guest star spots and the pilot of The Leftovers, in which I do a speech. So what I discovered about David is that he's a perfectionist. And I'm a perfectionist. And it was my first film. So if you want me to do 70 takes, that's all the more time I get to practice. <laughs> 
and try to do better. And once I figured out, you know, that, and, you know, I tell the story on set about sort of saying, remember you hired a beginner and I don't know the language. So you have to explain what you're asking me for. And he became such an extraordinary teacher to me. He would show me the frame, why he, he needed me to do what he was asking me to do. And when you, you can't take it personally, you have to understand that he's looking at the whole picture and you know, when he's focused on you, but so many other times he's not. And, and if you're going to start getting, taking it personally, you're going to get in your own way. And that doesn't help anybody. Also, people think of him as a perfectionist, but he loves mistakes because to him, those are often the most human moments. There was a, mo- there was a scene where I'm, I'm calling Ben at the airport and I, I fumbled the phone in the air and then caught it. And then I continued and then I broke and he was like, oh, that was so, that was it. That was so great. So I think there's kind of a misconception about what David's after. He's after what he finds to be the most human behavior. And he thinks actors have a lot of bad habits. So going into that as a first timer who didn't know a lot about that process, but it also sounds like David actually took the time to be a teacher of sorts. Did you ever find yourself in the situation where as a newcomer, you are afraid to ask what you might think is a silly question? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm one of my crosses to bear (laughs) is that I'm a real know-it-all and it takes a lot of humility for me to admit when I don't know something. And the older I get, the more humble I get and the easier that's, that's getting to admit that, that I'm wrong. And I have to say, it was really inspiring to be on set with Tyler Perry. Because Tyler, who I love, would always say to David, he'd be like, I don't know what that word means. And I, I learned from that. I learned from that, that let's like cut through the bullshit and, and do the work. Don't let your ego get in the way. So I learned a lot from the way people around me were asking questions. And because David made me feel that I belonged there, that he wouldn't have cast me. That's what you can trust too, is that he wouldn't have you there if he didn't think you could do it. That I had to just trust that instead. So, yeah. I always find it encouraging when, when directors you think are like, I mean, kind <laughs> of like on God level, are that warm and welcoming and understanding when you're new. Very funny. I mean, maybe not everybody has that experience, but David's funny and I love him. And we had a great time. It was a wonderful group. And I think we all got along. So David's only one of many incredible film directors you've worked with. So if you had to name one director whose process yours most naturally aligns with, who would it be? And then on the flip side of it, who challenged you to adapt the most? Oh, that's really interesting. There's something about working with Sean Durkin on The Nest that I appreciated because he really let Jude and me do a scene like we were in the theater. It felt like a theater rehearsal. Now on an indie film, you don't get a lot of time for rehearsal, but he, he was always reluctant to interrupt us in case we, in case we got somewhere that was interesting. And I, and as a theater actor, that feels really natural to me to get to do that. So I would say he's one. What was the other half? Someone that challenged you to adapt more. Oh yeah. (laughs) There's a, there's a director named Daniel Sackheim who's a wonderful television director who directed, there's a great episode of The Leftovers and it's this image that people pull a lot from our cinematography where water from the hotel is running down my face and it's dripping. That was from an episode he directed and Daniel yells a lot. He's a real yeller. He says, even when you're doing a good job, he's like, perfect, yes! And there's a lot of yelling and it's really intense. And I, I am a person who, um, I, get really, I get really quiet when people yell. I, I don't like, 
I don't like to respond to that sort of behavior, even though I had a lot of coaches who yelled anyway. And so I really had to work hard not to let my fight or flight kind of anxiety shut me down when Daniel was yelling, even though he was sometimes yelling really nice things. So Daniel's a yeller. And I actually often do hear that actors notice what a director does behind the monitor. And then it kind of like tips them off that they like what they're doing. Just because I am obsessed with Jurassic Park and therefore... (laughs) Spielberg, what is his? Oh, yes. Steven. Steven is so filled with wonder. He's one of the most childlike, and I, that's not to diminish his capacity in any way, because I think children are smarter than we are. He has this, um, like, I asked him on the first day of the post if he was nervous. He goes, oh, I'm always nervous when I start. But it's a, there's a giddiness about it and a playfulness. And yet, he also can still cut in the camera. He knows exactly what he wants. He doesn't hesitate to take the camera away from someone if they're not getting what he needs and operate it himself. I mean, he's absolutely clear about his expectations. But the, the spirit of the, of the thing is quite um, playful. And so with Steven, I actually felt like I could make jokes. And I could, you know, I could really be myself with him in a way that was really... Um, liberating help i think it helps you do good work he's i like hearing that about someone i admire so much yeah he's great have to ask about the leftovers i guess kind of just you know generally we know that it must have been a very emotionally challenging show to shoot and damon has even said that that first season was you know maybe a little too depressing so did you feel that yourself and did you kind of welcome that change in seasons two and three i had a very specific idea about the se- about season one because I'm a big Tom Parada fan and I think of Tom as a satirist. Tom is very funny and very dry and that's very present in The Leftovers, the book. And I did feel that, that season one of, of The Leftovers tended toward the humorless in a way that Tom's writing doesn't. So you could see that um, Tom's material was sort of losing out against a, against a bigger aim and I always tried to find the humor and I always used to joke with them. If Nora Durst is your class clown, then you might be in a little bit of trouble. But, um, but I do think that that season one really sets us up to make those pivots in season two and three and in some ways makes them even more special for how they evolved. And in some ways, maybe two and three are a little closer to my, my personality as I was describing earlier that I'm actually quite, quite light. Um, But, but I think it's, I've never seen a show quite do what we did there. I, I would love to see a show that starts off as a drama and then completely becomes a sitcom, you know, but that's as close as I think I'm going to get. I feel like there's something to be said for a show that also knows how to pivot and has the guts to pivot rather yeah. than to stick to what you set out in the pilot or the first season and kind of keep driving. I think guts out. is a good word. I think guts is a really good word for it. I felt like that show was gutsy. Yes. And, and you might not agree with all the choices we made, but you couldn't deny that they were, there were some really bold choices. Absolutely. I do have one super spoilery question for the leftovers for you. Did you ever straight up just ask Damon if Nora's telling the truth at the very end? I never, I never asked. I didn't ask a lot of questions. Mimi Leader tells the story, which I don't tell to flatter myself, but just to illustrate how things were operating. I think she went to ask Damon how they were going to direct it. And, and then she said, oh, never mind. Never mind. Carrie will know what to do. They just left it in my hands. And I didn't ask 
And now I, I think maybe I should have. But I came to find out later that a lot of the other actors were asking a lot of questions. But I think because I come from the theater, I don't question the writing generally. If I'm confused about something or something doesn't feel character driven to me, I will always raise that. But I had so few moments of that on the in the scripts of The Leftovers that it didn't occur to me that I could like go to them and be like, so what's... And I didn't know that's how it was going to end until I got the speech. So I just worked on it and did it knowing what I felt and what I believed and knowing that it wouldn't really matter. The performance wouldn't necessarily be different if, you know, one or the other thing was true because of the objective. So no, I didn't ask. <laughs> so, but does that extend to how you feel about it? I mean, I guess while you're shooting it, but also now do you have to kind of make your decision and close the book on it? I made my decision when I did it. But I've always maintained that I'll never say what my decision was because it will rob people of their experience of it. Because, of course, the show reveals more about you than it does about me. And so what Carrie, the actor, thinks it doesn't matter. It's really interesting as many people find their way to the show during pandemic because they're running out of material to watch. <laughs> and it's so prescient. You know, it's really, it's really an interesting thing to watch because everybody's grieving right now. There's yeah. collective grief going of for our lives, our routines, our normal, for people. There's a lot of grief. Yeah, and I, I say it all the time now, but I don't know what I would do without entertainment right now because I feel like a lot of it is either helping me take my mind off of it or helping me process it in a way that I might not have been before. Yep, art has always done that. It's always been there. It is actually the oldest profession. I know we think it's the other one, but it's not. It's artists, it's storytellers. Absolutely. Um, you know I can't not ask you about the MCU if we're going down your filmography here. So... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, I believe you've said that that opportunity came your way as a voice acting gig and you didn't know what the project was. Yes. When you found out that it was an MCU film, is there any apprehension that comes with that? Essentially, knowing that the second you commit to that, you are also committing to getting asked about it in like right. you do. That's funny. You know, it, it did. Of course, I had to ask myself. I think for any job, an actor has to ask themselves, what does this say about the kind of work I want to do? What message is this sending to the world? Because for me, number one is always the writing. Uh, number two is whether it challenges me in a particular way. And then number three, of course, has to be what are the considerations more broadly for my career? Because frankly, if you want to have longevity, you have to think about it. And so there was, there was some idea of having come from a pretty um, auteur television world to jumping into the most commercial project that ever existed. There was a little bit of soul searching about that, but ultimately I had done motion capture for video games in graduate school. Um, and it, it was a really, it was a really unusual opportunity that most actors would kill for. And who am I to say no to that? Um, but the process was just unlike anything I've ever done. So um, it had its own challenges, you know? And yes, I get asked about that. I've signed more autographs for that movie than I have for all of my other work combined. Oh God, I can imagine. And it, I, I, imagine, I imagine it must be frustrating to have certain other films not get that same attention. But at the same time, I just have so much respect for that franchise. That's just- yeah, They're really smart. And they're, really, they're trafficking some really large ideas. And let's face it, they're our Greek gods. There's a spiritual life that people choose when they look to those franchises with such reverence. It's not just about commercialism. It's about gods and goddesses. Yeah. It's about something bigger than us. I, I think I can, I can tap into that. I definitely know where you're coming from with that. So the nest now. I am a big fan of borderline films and just what Sean, Josh, and Antonio are doing together over there. So when you're working on a film like that with them, can you feel the difference when you're working with a film collective? 
That's interesting. You know, their, their collective is sort of has, had been dissolved just because of their life obligations. So they weren't as present with each other on that project as I know they have been historically, because my husband made Christine with Antonio um, and I got to be on set for some of that. And what he was able to do on a budget in a period film was astonishing. And I knew that part of that was producing. And I think it's a benefit of having other artists that are helping you produce your work because they really are focused on the artistry, the outcome, uh, really supporting your goals and not just not, not making money, not, you know, clearly with some of the, the, the work those guys are putting out, it's not really about being commercial. And I think there is some benefit in a film collective because they understand what the goal of the artist is. And, um, I think Sean, however he has been cared for in that way, that means that his vision is very pure and he, it's very clear. And he has this amazing relationship with Matthias Erdely, who is our DP. It was almost completely wordless. They almost never spoke to each other. They would both sit and look at the setup and they would look at each other look back and then they would make a decision and they almost never they were never speaking it was telepathy and I've never seen anything like that before so whatever they're doing you know to create that environment for each other it's it definitely works and you do feel it you feel a kind of reverence and love and you find yourself getting involved in the telepathy I remember there was a part Machia said Carrie and I was like yes and I knew exactly what he was asking me to do but he never said it and I thought oh no I've, I've caught it I've caught the Whatever this um, strange aura is, it's it's so really wonder to me that we don't have more film collectives or, or just like a team mentality where you know yeah. you have someone that has your back through this like crazy process where we have to pour so much time, energy, and money into. Mm-hmm. I think I think we're seeing, I think we're going to see a real pull toward that because a lot of actresses in particular are starting production companies and they're doing that so they can give people creative control, not only so they can choose the stories they can tell but that they can also give people permission to make the thing they want to make while also bringing in the funds required to make it. So I'm, I'm hoping we see more actors as the buffer. I can't believe I haven't asked this question in such a long time, but if you had to pick one female, it's a big question too, you might have to think about it, one female filmmaker in the industry who is changing it for the better that really inspires you, who would you pick? Changing it for the better. Well, I think Celine Schiama, I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is just astonishing. Her, her DP... I love them both. I want to work with them. I hope they watch this and call me. Um, I also just watched Zama by Lucretia Martel. And her, that is the fever dream of a film that feels so elliptical. There's a scene of intimacy between two people. And there's a man discovering that this, this couple's having an intimate relationship. And I feel like in a more masculine focused and a more traditionally male film, you would have seen them having sex. And in this film, you see them having, she has him help her with her undergarment and they're just chatting casually and it's so much more intimate because sex can be just one off thing and I was so aware of the framing of that intimacy in through a female gaze was so powerful to me and so that that those grace notes they've always been there it's just no one's given the women money to make those things so in some ways I don't think of it as new or innovative I think of them as just always maybe they're more insistent and maybe we're going to start seeing them and then you see somebody like Greta Gerwig break through and you think thank god let's have more of that, please. You also sound like you have a, a real eye for visuals. Are, are you drawn to cinematography oh. at all? I haven't. I, I don't think of myself. I don't give myself that credit. But I will say my husband has an extraordinary collection of DVDs. He believes in 
watching them on a Blu-ray with a 4K projector and not in streaming. He won't let us stream films. So I have a ridiculous collection. And during the pandemic, we've watched a movie every single night. So we've watched over 100 and we've been here five months, I think. So we're up to almost 150 films. And so that saturation, I think, has made me more sensitive to choices. There's a great movie called Cremator from 1969. It's by a Czech filmmaker. Some people say the best Czech film ever made. His transitions, they, they are unlike anything I've ever seen. It's the most clean and yet it just has this momentum because of the way he transitions scene to scene. And I don't think I would be as attuned to that if I hadn't been watching films every night. I think you guys have the best lockdown plan I've heard yet. We do. We do. We have so many movies. We'll never run out of movies. We could do this for years. I am so, and like you could do it for years without streaming too. That's like unheard of right yeah. now. The internet goes down. It's okay. I don't need it. I needed this lesson last week when we were out of power for a week. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of the visuals in The Nest in particular, and I think you kind of brought this up earlier, but so much takes place in wider framing. Mm-hmm. So did that kind of give the shoot a more, you know, like a stage-like feel for you? Huh. Yeah, actually, that's an interesting point. The camera was not often right in my face. That's true, which is very different from a lot of TV in particular, a lot of close-ups in TV. And so there's a scene, the argument that, that Jude and I have, that really did feel like we could have been alone in that room or that we were doing a play removed from an audience. That space is nice. It does create a little more room for your imagination, right? You're not ignoring, or you're not looking at a mat box all the time instead of an actor, which is deeply impersonal. Yeah. So, yeah, it did. It did create that, I think. And how about the idea of, you know, they, they do, they, they fight and they exchange words, but it's also a kind of movie where so much can be said through what's not said so do you have to discuss those moments heavily with Sean and Jude to make sure you're really kind of getting the point across in those dialogueless moments you know the that I say I think is a function of good writing those beats are written into a good script a good script rhythmically will teach you what those beats are and then a good director will make sure that you get them and Sean is a very patient director and sometimes he would let a scene really kind of roll out for a really long time. Sometimes it did feel like a really long time that you're holding a look, you know, but I do think that um, that's just, it was a really well-constructed script. It's one of the things I loved about it. And that stuff is really organic to it. So as we move on here, before I let you go, a couple upcoming projects. Here's another one that you're not going to stop getting asked about. It's, it's Ghostbusters. And, you know, I'm just making assumptions based on the promo material I've seen thus far, but it feels like a passing of the torch type of situation to the kids in particular, but I want to see you kind of get into the action as well. And I'm just wondering, is this role going to give you the opportunity to be more than just like, I guess the cookie cutter mom in the film. Yeah. That was certainly one of the things I was afraid of when I first was approached about it. I think of Dee Wallace in ET, who was a wonderful actress who then sort of became, well, she actually went on, had a really interesting life, but you know, she became sort of the, the franchise mom. And I thought about that, but Jason is smarter than that. Jason is the next generation. And he wrote a lot of fun for all of us. And it was one of the reasons I said yes to it. Um, you know, she actually has a personality and sense of humor, and she does get in on the action. And that was really fun for me. I mean, I'm a ghostbuster, basically which is insane. I grew up with that movie. I'm going to be hearing that song in every interview for the rest of my life. It's my obituary movie. 
feel, I feel like there's nothing wrong with hearing that song over and over. Yeah. Now, the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of hate saying this and boiling down Julian Fellows' resume to just Downton Abbey, but Downton Abbey has a huge, huge fan base. So what would you say to a hardcore Downton fan who is excited for the Gilded Age for that reason? And then also, what is it about the show that you think is going to make it stand out? Mm. Well, of course, it's everything Julian Fellows does well with the added pleasure of being on HBO, which makes it, I think Downton Abbey fans will be gratified by the fact that we get to be a little more edgy and a little more relevant to what's happening in the world, but not in a way that is offensive, right? It's not about suddenly everyone's naked. (laughs) It's going to be, it's still Downton, it's still that flavor. It's still um, that time period. Uh, Well, it's, you know, 1890s to the 1920s or what have you, but it's a really interesting time to be telling that story because it was really when our economy was most stratified. You had all of these new money billionaires coming in and people were getting poorer and poorer. And it's really quite politically savvy to tell this story right now. And I think, I hope that people can find, they can, as you mentioned earlier, process some things that are happening in the world, but at some remove. And I think it will be really hopefully healing. Now I have a very random question because just so you know, like everyone at Collider loves you. <laughs> like we always talk about questions. The amount of people that were just like, yeah, let, it, let her know we're huge fans. It was I know, right. I so appreciate that. I can't tell you how much it means. It does. There's one colleague in particular who told me that you often bring up the books you're reading in your interviews oh. and she wants to know, will you ever start a book club? A book club. Well, here's the thing. My life is too inconsistent to start a book club or even be in one. I sort of half participate in my best friend's book club. Sometimes she's like, you have to read this one so we can talk about it. So I'm sort of like every fourth book, you know, I might be able to knock it out. I just think maybe someday when I retire. Okay. Right now it's just too crazy. There's too much traveling. And also I have a two and a half year old. So I read now about five minutes a day if I, if I can stay awake. I feel, I feel like uh, I read to my, my niece and it's just time to her patience with the book. It's like yes, the book yes. is not big to begin my, with. My son wants to read to me. He won't even let me read to him anymore. He just memorizes the books and just now I just sit next to him and he recites them to me, which is great. Oh, wait, I have to say this about Downton Abbey. Wait, I mean about the Gilded Age. The pandemic has given the costume department more time to do this extraordinary hand beating feathering so that's something they can look forward to okay i, li- yeah. I like the positive spin on that there yeah before but anyway, yeah I read fire questions mm-hmm. okay okay what do you what do you collect what do i collect oh books i'm not much of a collector oh so you got a good supply of books and dvd like you guys are yeah. just- <laughs> i guess you're right those aren't the best things to move <laughs> if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life what would it be Ooh, maybe my mom's chili that's, a, that's like a good, like, homey kind of uh, pick to make. I think the food is homey. Okay. <laughs> I also make a really good pancake, though, so it's a toss-up. Do you play any sports anymore? You said you played soccer earlier. I had a full ACL replacement a few years ago, and I haven't gotten back to the contact sports. But um, I'm an avid exerciser, and I'm always looking for something new to do. Okay. Oh, I, I hope I get to play soccer again. I haven't given up on it. I love it. Okay. <laughs> I, I hope you get back to it. But the ACL thing scared me. Um Let's go with a serious one. What is the biggest fear that you've managed to overcome? Oh, gosh, that's really big. That's a really big one. Oh, um, 
You know, we have this fear, I think, that everyone, that we're going to disappoint everyone. I was always afraid of disappointing people. I think a lot of women are, but no one's really thinking about you. <laughs> so you can't really disappoint them. It's all in your head. I'm going to take that and I'm putting it in my back pocket for later. Not worth it. <laughs> I needed to hear that. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you. This was really lovely. I really appreciate you having me. Thank Huge you. congratulations on The Nest, which everyone can see on September 18th. Keep I don't eye. know where. From, <laughs> I have some drive-ins. I think we have some drive-ins. It dr- dr- that's like another silver lining to the pandemic. That's cool, right? I'm excited to see the resurgence of drive-ins because I really do think in general we need more of them. Yeah, who, who does? It's a lot of fun. Good food. Congratulations on the nest and also everything you've accomplished. Thank Can't you. wait to see more. But don't retire and start a book club. I'll be patient. I won't. I promise. I have, I have a kid now. I have to make some money. <laughs> good deal. Good deal. I love you, Collider. Thank you for your love and support, everybody over there. Thank you. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save $25. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa Know How. Napa Know How. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831.20. Shop Black Friday week deals Sunday through Friday at Kohl's. Plus, get $15 Kohl's cash for every $50 spent and take an extra 15% off. Get the big one throws, $849. Toastmaster small appliances are just $214 after rebate. And Fitbit Versa 2 is $129.99. Plus, take 30% off Lego, 70% off fine jewelry, and save on boots for her, $16.99. Plus, get fast and free store pickup. Shop Black Friday week deals at Kohl's and Kohl's.com. Select styles. Office valid November 22nd through the 27th. 15% off with promo code Enjoy15. Lego and Fitbit offers and coupons do not apply. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.